Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks for listening to the Not A Diving podcast. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our private Discord server, sign up at patreon.com slash scuba official. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, I have been laid up with a serious back problem for the last, well, nearly two weeks now. So I haven't been able to record a new episode this week. And actually, it ruled me out of my shows in Porto and Berlin at the weekend. So this is massively annoying and, yeah, frustrating. But we're going to take the opportunity on the show this week to revisit one of my favorite episodes from the podcast all the way back in February 2022. It's Debridge. So not going to say too much about it. You are probably familiar with the man's work. We haven't covered drum and bass too much on the show, but this was a notable exception. And hopefully that's something we're going to address on the show coming up quite soon. So if you haven't done already, follow the show wherever you listen to this podcast. Follow the Spotify playlist as well. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist. And join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. Remember, if you don't want to hear the ads, you can also sign up at Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. And yeah, that's about it. That's about all I'm good for this week. So yeah, without further delay, here is Debridge. Debridge, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Been a while. Yeah, I'm. I'm very well. Whereabouts are you at the moment? I live in uh, Antwerp, in uh, Belgium. How long has that been for? Ooh, uh, since 2015. Now, huh? yeah. Okay. Yeah, Belgium's a. It's a pretty good music place, actually. Particularly Antwerp. I've I've played there a good few times, and it seems to have a. Um, it's got a bit of a like a history of like particularly for sort of bassy type stuff is it what's the scene like there at the moment 
it's um I think it's you know they're, they're getting back slowly getting back on their feet I think some of the some of the clubs have definitely suffered um Ampere for example um I think it's Varg is the other one um but I think yeah they're slowly sort of getting getting things together um there hasn't been and like Antwerp's famous for like there's that really big DMB festival here like Rampage at Sports Palace I don't think they've done that in a while so but I've um I know things like up in Brussels are getting back on their feet like Fuse and things like that um so yeah it's uh they're getting back on it yeah okay right there's a million things I want to ask you about okay today but um just to get started I had Roscoe on the show last week and we were talking about London music scenes and particularly um I guess scenes that came out of the uh you know the hardcore thing that you know happened Mm -hmm. in the 90s and obviously drum and bass is a big big part of that but the kind of distinguishing finger that i kind of detect in drum and bass is that basically all of those other scenes had a real sort of boom and then bust and then really struggled to get out of that bust cycle but drum and bass seems to be like particularly resilient um in a way that you know garage wasn't really and and particularly with i mean i mean my own experience in dubstep what is it about dmb do you think that gives it that kind of resilience um, I mean, if you agree with that statement in the first place, you know I mean, yeah, no, definitely. It's like it's it's one of those. It's weird. It's almost like it was seen as like the the, the sort of the unwanted child of dance music for some for so long. Do you know what I mean? So it's always had this kind of like f- sort of fuck you attitude to everyone else. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like as much as 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 many times as the as the press tried to write it off. It just, you know, it wasn't going anywhere. And I think it was, it had a lot to do with um, just the artists involved themselves in general, just kind of like having this real passion for what it was we were doing and moving forward because there was nothing else really like it. Do you know what I mean? Because it's, it's, it's almost like it's in a tempo range that's nowhere near anything else. So it didn't have anything to sort of sort of be compared to in that way. It wasn't like a a slight offshoot of something. Do you know what I mean? It was influenced, definitely influenced by a lot of other scenes, but it was just, it was sort of out there on its own, doing its own thing and not really caring what anyone else or any, or anything else was doing. So it's, cause I, obviously I grew up with it sort of from when I got into it, it was like 92. Um, and it was coming out of that hardcore into the jungle phase and that kind of, just especially you know growing up in London as well and it was just so all-encompassing it was everywhere and it was just kind of like it was a real sort of it was a way of life um you were just kind of like you were just when if you were in you were in do you know what I mean and and that's and in some ways that's probably been part of some of DMB's down not downfalls downfalls the wrong word but just kind of like it's they were so insular and, and sort of blinkered um in in their views and kind of like it was it was it's like a do or die attitude was it quite was it quite sort of protective of itself i mean that's the impression i had from the outside that it was kind of like a if you're if you were in the club then then great but it was quite difficult to get in is that is that fair yeah i think it was in some ways and i think part of that was probably down to the fact that people try to write it off so it was like well we're not going to let you so we are going to be super protective of it. And, you know, and some say it was like it was difficult for people to get into. And I don't necessarily think that was true. I think as long as you, if you were, if you were writing something that people wanted to hear and then you'd get heard, 
Do you know what I mean? It was like it it wasn't protective in that sense. I don't think, but it was right. it was just very protective in of people discrediting it. Do you know what I mean? And talking bad of it, um, and try yeah, and trying to bring it down. Um, because it was, it was, it wasn't, you know, it could still arguably is one of the, you know, the last true real new genres, do you know what I mean? Of like original genres of music because it was just so, just from a simple mathematical sense or whatever, because it was just so far removed in the tempo range from anyone else at the time. Um, I don't know, maybe, yes, I don't know, maybe Gabba was closer. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it was just, yeah, it's... It's 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 a, it's a strange it's a strange strange club, <laughs> right? I mean, I was I was reading um, I was reading transcript uh, transcript sorry to your Red Bull Music Academy lecture back from two thousand and five, okay. and you were talking about um, yeah, this is that's going to inform quite a lot of this because <laughs> you go, go into it. But I'm kind of in, interested and in kind of updated. Okay. That's a long time ago now. Um, but you said in that um that and you, you were talking about sort of major labels getting interested and all that kind of stuff which obviously you had a bit of a taste of with bank company but you you said that um for, for you guys in the, in the drum basin you had the mentality of like having them come to us rather than us going to them that, that was the kind of mentality about it we weren't going to go out and, and try and sell this if people were interested and that's cool but like it wasn't really a you know there was no hard sell and i was kind of sort of contrasting that with the impression i had of garage about the same time which was much well it struck me as being much more of a um, you know, let's kind of get rich quick kind of attitude, which I, I mean, I'm sure there were people people who were engaged at the time, which would kind of take issue with that. But I mean, do you think that's a kind of fair like contrast? It's hard to say because I don't, I, I never, because you know, as scenes come came along, because there was always this kind of like a sort of conversation bubbling of whenever a new scene come along, it's like, well, are you going to be a bandwagon jumper? Do you know what I mean? And just yep. and get on that train. So I was, and I was never really. Because I was so staunchly DMB, I was never about that. Do you know what I mean? And that was so. That was all part of the kind of culture as well, kind of like this, you know, sticking. This this is my crew. This is what we do. I don't really care what what anyone else is doing. And and that's and if they want to do that, that's cool. And that's kind of like I think led to to DMB's longevity in so, in some ways but also kind of I think you know maybe stifled it in some ways as well but you could be argued that that attitude and the so-called sort of the way it sort of circled the wagons or whatever you know that kind of like not letting one in helped encourage other scenes to be and other other scenes to grow and flourish do you know what I mean because certain people felt like they couldn't get into DMB so they went off and did their own thing do you know what I mean? And and I, there's a part of me that thinks that that has happened over the years. Um, oh yeah, I mean certainly with I think that was a that was a thing with dubstep and and also it was it was just a great example as well of what you can do with music that you love. You know, keeping it underground and you know growing it sort of organically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't, it's yeah. I've never, I suppose I haven't really thought about it in such a, in such a long time. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and because it is weird, it's like it's like now we've come sort of full circle, and DMB and DMB sort of went through this whole being like overground for, for want of a better word, um, you know, and getting number ones in the charts and things like that. So it's sort of like okay, we're going to get back into bed with that that idea, um, but still, there's this 
there's this sort of sect within it that's just kind of like, no, I'm not having none of that. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to, don't want to have anything to do it. So it's kind of like all these offshoots sort of happen, but there's still this core underground kind of like, probably led by the likes of Goldie, to be honest. Do you know what I mean? He's just right. kind of like, he doesn't want to have anything to do with sort of commercial success or something, maybe. Um, but I think it's, 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 so I'm quite, I'm, I'm really, I'm quite proud of some of the, you know, the the fact that it's been able to do that. It's been able to kind of get these number ones, um, become such a, almost like a, a career choice, you know what I mean? As a genre, which is quite weird. Um, you know, you get these sort of new groups, pop groups coming along and be like, right, we're going to make drum and bass. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a thing now, which is quite weird. Um, yeah. I mean, when you know Andy C's doing his gigs at Wembley, I suppose kids look at that and think, "Shit, yeah, I could, I could uh, make a living doing that." <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd love to do that as well. <laughs> 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 but I, I can't, I can't mix like I don't know, I don't know what his his his, his mix rate is. I mean, it's something like eighty tunes per thirty minutes or something. <laughs> it's like I, I, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not that uh, fast. So, um. Let me ask you something else sort of adjacent to that, which is another thing that came up in that, in that interview back in 2005, which is about the about dub plate culture. Um, because that was like integral to, um, to early dubstep. But what, um, what you mentioned in that, that interview back in 2005, which surprised me a little bit, was that you were saying that dub plates weren't so much of a thing early in the drum and bass scene and it became something that you didn't see as necessarily being positive. Is that something that you look back on now and I mean how do you think about that yeah I don't, yeah it was it, I, no it, it wasn't really a thing I, it didn't feel like a thing because it's it was almost like every back then it was almost because it was maybe it was easier to press records but everything was just going to promo and it was all about white labels and, and you knew it was going to come out do you know what I mean but then but the scene as a whole changed because it was back then it was a the D, the DJs and producers were two separate entities. Do you know what I mean? So it was that that was there was never that confusion. But when once it became to a point where producers realised that they could earn a living DJing as well. Do you know what I mean? It was like that sort of that side of things um, took over because it was like I can I can do a I can do a set of of just my stuff. Or I can just supply a a you know ex DJ with my stuff, and he you know you know he's going to be have access to a certain audience and it, it would help your career in that way. So it was like dub plate culture kind of grew. It felt like for me as as a producer, it grew grew that way, and I sort of experienced it. Obviously, you know, coming from when I was with Hardware as Future Forces, and then suppose you know, when I was actually doing well as, as bad company, we were part of that kind of cycle of, right, we need to... So is, so, so is that a kind of late 90s development then, I guess? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think kind of, um, um, it, it probably was earlier, but from my experience, it felt that was... Because I, I started going down to Music House around, I think like 90, 95, 96, maybe around then. So you're probably seeing like with the advent of like... um blue note and those that that kind of night that's when it felt for yeah. me dubs were kind of becoming more of a thing 
because yeah, because you know, even for, for for us, like from I think I said it, and maybe I said it anyway that you know the nine, the nine wasn't on on wasn't on dub. That was a TP. That was that was a promo that we we gave out. So right. that you know, if it was it was almost how like, many did you have? Do you remember? Ah, uh, we wouldn't have had that many. I think we would actually back then TPs. We were probably doing about. 50, 50 maybe, maybe? So yeah 50 yeah. something like that and i remember we actually went down to music house with them to give them out to people <laughs> really <laughs> yeah um so yeah it kind of it just sort of yeah that sort of was really quite organic in its in its growth and um and yeah it was it was never never cut to dub i don't think yeah we didn't even cut it to dub we were it was almost like this is what we wanted to release and this is it's going to be this and we didn't and we weren't really in a position to be we weren't djing so it wasn't a necessity for us do you know what i mean um but we really not, none of you were playing out much at all is that right no not really we well me and jason were ha, had gigs as future forces but we left that do you know what i mean so we were mm. we were bad company so we didn't become bad company we didn't sign to an agency unique arts, artists until after like the the nine and possibly even um like planet dust or i can't even remember how long it was it was a good while do you know what i mean before mm. before we actually were on an agency i mean that's so different to now isn't it because yeah. as soon as like <laughs> that's it's what well, i mean i guess the difference is though that you know you could make a bit of money releasing records in those days right because i mean and i imagine you were selling bucket loads of those 12s yeah, yeah, we we were selling, we were do, we were doing all right. Do you know what I mean? I think we were averaging at least averaging around fifteen between fifteen and twenty thousand. I think. <laughs> I mean, that's just mind blowing, isn't it? Think yeah. about it now. Yeah, yeah. I was just, even just I was looking back at some records of my own the other, uh, the other day, just kind of like these limited limited to a thousand. I was like, Jesus, back <laughs> when a thousand thousand was limited as well. Jesus. <laughs> you know yeah but yeah things things have changed somewhat so we exactly so it's kind of like we didn't really it was like djing was kind of like it's added added extra do you know what i mean um yep. but i think as we we, we were kind of it was it was nice that almost like it was we couldn't go to every party so it's almost like it was nice once we were djing we were actually seeing the reaction of of people and i suppose in some ways you could it could you could be argued that that had an had an adverse effect in some respects because it's kind of like the the crowd reaction and you DJing it and you playing the music there and then informed what you'd go back and make in the studio. Do you know what I mean? So it was like, yeah, absolutely. It can be kind of corrupting, can't it? I mean, I yeah. definitely experienced that, and I think you see it when when um you know when a producer becomes well known for tunes that he's just made in his bedroom without any you know without having that kind of. I guess, um, exposure mm. and their music changes when they go out on the road. You see it all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So it was like, we wasn't, it was, it was a strange sort of, it was very transitional, but Bad Company as a whole was, was a lot of transitions for us. Um, whether it be through, you know, how we started to where we ended up, <laughs> very different things. Yeah, it was quite, it was quite a short period as well, wasn't it? But anyway, yeah. I, I, well, let's, we'll get into Bad Company. Uh, let's, uh, just let's just take a step back for a moment. I want to go go back to that really early drum and bass jungle scene that, when it came out of hardcore because um, you, as you said, you were in it from from the very start, right? Ninety two ish. That's uh, I had my first release in ninety two. Yeah, I mean, you. I mean, but presumably you were going out to raves and stuff. Yeah, that, or yeah. yeah so well, yeah, just yeah. give us a kind of snapshot of like of what it was like in this. In like, you were in London, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, I was kind of in between 
Malvern and London. I used to, I grew up, I kind of like my teenage years were in a little town, little um, Cotswold town called Malvern in Worcestershire. Um, so that's, that was sort of where my beginnings and I moved down to London. Um, I can't even remember, maybe it was around 90, 91. Um, and my brother, Steve, Steve Spacek, he lived in London. We lived in Lewisham. Um, and I basically sort of ended up living living with him. And he used to just, you know, he used to take me out raving, take me to like Roast, Astoria, you know, Orange. Um, and then we used to know there was a local crew, um, Desert Storm. I used to do things down at sort of Lee Valley. So that was really... Yeah, right. That Tottenham, was, right? Yeah, so that was more... The jungle was definitely coming through. I think it was just, it was, because I'm trying to remember if I actually sort of went out, I'd listened to, listened to hardcore as such, but never really went out to it. It was more kind of like, because London was definitely sort of like the whole jungle thing. And there was that sort of dark side jungle that came around as well. Um, it was pretty common to have like hardcore in one, one room and jungle in the other, I seem to recall. Yeah, those, yeah, those yeah. Places. So I was always, I was just a, in the jungle room. So I knew it was there. I think my only real exposure to hardcore as such was more um, like when I used to, um, uh, like, what was it called? Castle Morton. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because yeah, that was just literally just around the corner from where I used to live. So that, you know, and there was just you know, Spiral Tribe, DIY, and all that all that lot were there. So that was that was more where I experienced hardcore. And I used to tapes, but I think... I was sort of coming back and forth between there and London and I was just sort of like, nah, I'm all about jungle. That's me. So yeah, it was just, it was just, I just felt like it was just everywhere, literally everywhere. It's almost like it was probably more pirate stations than there were legal stations at the time. It felt like right. on, on the radio, do you know what I mean? Um, what were the parties like? They were, I'm trying to think because I was pretty, you know, I was probably out, kids. Yeah, well, yeah, but I was also out of my mind. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I guess I mean everyone was right. That was the yeah. nature well, of the game. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to think what I what I, I I I used to really enjoy going to Astoria. That was I used to some some reason I just loved that spot. Um, you mean Astoria on Tottenham Court Road? Is that right? Yeah, in yeah, it was no, was it on yeah, Charing Cross? Yeah, it was on Charing Cross Road. Yeah. Yeah, and they had they had didn't just have raves there. It was like they had loads of concerts and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, that just used to there was it was I used to always just love going to that one for some reason. I just got I just got memories of like Five O and who was that other guy? MC Chalky White and things like that. And then actually, I remember actually a really good rave I went to in I don't know if it's still there. It's not it's not anymore. I think it's the you know, Bristol Polytechnic when the Polytechnic was there. Um, right. that was, I think that's where I did my first peel actually was, right. was, was there. Um, what year was that? That would have been around the same time. That would have been early sort of 91, 90, 90, I think that would have been, but yeah, it was just like, just going, going out. It was just getting, getting, you know, getting the bus up there, getting the night bus back. It was it just literally jungle was a soundtrack for the whole journey. Which, I mean, whether it was people playing it out of their just these you know, their headphones you could hear, and coming out of cars, and then and it's just it was just yeah, just so encompassing. It was really weird in some ways how much how much how enveloping it was. 
as as a scene. Um, it just felt it was it was that you definitely felt like you were part of something, um, and yep. it had its within it. Obviously, it had its factions. Whether it was like if you were into Rush FM or Cool FM or was the other one shocking? You know, I was a I was a Rush FM guy. Um, so that was it. Was just that on constantly in the background, no matter what. <laughs> I mean, who were the who were the DJs on there? For me, I was all about Red Ant. I think that was his okay. name. Yeah, Red, Red Ant was my was my boy. I, I can't yes. can't remember any other any other names. I mean, you've done well to remember one. To be fair, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So. So there was a certain amount of crossover between radio DJs and raves, but like, I mean, not that much, right? I think it was, I'm right in saying that the the kind of rave DJs were a, a lot of the names that you still hear now. Is that is that fair? I mean, certainly people like Randall. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Andy it was, yeah, it was definitely Ray, you know, Ray Keith, definitely like, yeah, Randall, Kenny Ken, all those guys. And then, but, but I used to go to the, the smaller ones to see like when Rush FM or whatever put on a party or Call FM. Call, yeah, Call, I think Call FM did one on Curtain Road. There was a place opposite Plastic People. There was like a, a space. It wasn't, yep. it's not the pub. I don't know what it is, but something down there was like a, something down there. I think they, they did a couple, they did some really good parties. Um, so yeah, it was, we used to, it, it's definitely like the, the the names that you still hear. Brocky, Brocky was a big one for um, big one for me. But yeah, there was the radio. I think yeah, the radio ones weren't so as prevalent as as you know the the usual names. Yeah. Um. So you're kind of like fairly new in London, but you. I mean, obviously, with your. I mean, Steve's your older brother, right? I'm, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. So uh, he's. I guess he was like showing you the ropes a little bit of the city. But how did you get into into making music then? Because obviously it sounds sounds like it happened pretty quick, like getting to London and re- getting your first releases out. Uh, it was, I suppose it was pretty quick because I was I was in um I was doing a BTEC in real time computer studies uh, down at Sellhurst, um, and basically I kind of ended up. I think mean, I got I was living with my auntie and I got kicked out, and my brother said <laughs> right. I can come live with him, and he was in a he was in a band called Stex just prior to that late eighties. And he was, he, I think this is just around, actually, this was just around the time, was he, he'd started SpaceX, I think then. He was, I'm writing some early, the early sort of, um, oh God, what's the Kavasha album. Yeah. So he was signed to Ireland at the time. And I think he, they basically, he had like, uh, he was given a publishing advance, which was, which was an all right amount. And he basically was like, uh, I need to, you know, I want to get some equipment. And me coming from computers, that was, it wasn't too, too big an ask for me. So he was just kind of like, you know, he bought a sampler, bought, you know, S950, Atari 5, whatever is it, 520, um, Cubase, that machine, and a little mixing, a little eight track cassette record, like uh, mixing, mixing console kind of thing. And yep. a pair of, what it, yeah, a pair of Yamaha. I still remember this Yamaha NS10s and a Yamaha SY22 keyboard. Yeah, uh, sort of classic gear, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was it. So he was kind of like he was just doing his own thing, but in his spare time, it was kind of like we'd write because we were all going out as well. We'd he'd we'd write sort of hardcore dance music. So you know what I mean. So 
it was more, it was like a spare time hobby for him because he was sort of quite, you know, he had, he had to deliver an album to Ireland. So he was having to write music and write demos and his stuff was very sort of like, it was electronic, but there was, there was an acoustic element to it because, you know, it had a drummer and a guitarist and whatnot. So he was writing demos mainly. And then when there was, when there was almost like when there was downtime, we had had spare time, we'd have a laugh and make sort of try and make these jungle or quite hard, hardcore-ish tunes. And yeah, we ended up, what was it we wrote? There was this sewage monsters we were called. Um, that's, that's a decent name. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we ended up, actually, we ended up um, borrowing some money from a real shady guy, actually, to pay for it. Um, didn't didn't sell that well. Said shady guy wasn't happy. And I mean, he basically came, he actually, yeah, he came and took, came and took like the, 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 mix, the mixing desk as, as, as collateral as it's like Jesus really? yeah so it's like I was I was quite quite annoying as well it's like that that actual release has been like on Discogs it, it was going for silly money and there was like this whole weird thing about it as well I think like where someone had bootlegged it had bootlegged oh. our our release <laughs> and that and was selling that so a lot of people made money out of that tune as typically is the way except us <laughs> <laughs> Do you right. know what I mean? And I don't even, I still yeah. don't have another copy of it because I'm not paying those silly prices for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did so you you what you made a tune, pressed it up, and then and then what took it around the shops? Is that uh, how? It was yeah, working? we went to a few. Actually, yeah, we literally out the back of the car, went to a few shops, went to Black Market, and then we went to um, oh, what was that distributor's called? I think it was like Twenty Two Carat. I think they were called um, mm. Lloyd and Odette used to work there. I think, and they and they. I they were they were doing raves as well in later on down the years. I think for some, I think they bought Innovation, mm. and they used to have and they were because Steve because Steve was really good friends with Mickey Finn as well. He used to live around the corner from us. Mm. Um, I remember him actually. I remember him coming round one time to Steve's. He had a I think he had a Beamer. He had a DAT machine in his Beamer. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that is peak nineties. Yeah, really. yeah, deep night. He had a da- and he played. Um, oh, what was his big tune? Some Justice. You remember that? Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah. I remember him coming around and, and, pl- and playing it in the car, just like, a, you know, ridiculous sound system. It was just kind of like, <laughs> but it was just like, it, was, it just felt, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> um, but I was always really quite quiet back then. And I think it was basically after the, after that sort of like, you know, this guy coming around and taking, taking um, Steve's, uh, mix, uh, mixing console it was kind of like it was left a sort of sour taste in our mouth and you know Steve was pissed off obviously we were just kind of all pissed off but I still wanted to sort of and I think I just as well I just um I got uh I had my first place my my own house so I managed so I'd, I'd moved out so I'd kind of started hanging uh, there was another guy in the group called Gary GMC blood for real um and he knew he knew Lenny Lenny the ice so that was how we kind of like me and Gary started. Um, he was like, oh, "I know we can go out to Lenny's studio and do some stuff." Right, and this was what well, this was must have been after he'd had his massive tune. Yeah, right? this was after after We Are um, and this, but this was like around the time when he was. They they had a Arms House crew had a stage, uh, Notting Hill Carnival. Um, yep. I think they used to do the All Saints Road, which was quite. It's, it's traditionally has been like the drum and bass. Right, yeah. The drum and bass venue. So they used to do that years ago. So we used to go go down there, um, were a part of that. And I used to sort of, yeah, just hang it. I just ended up sort of 
commuting and jumping the train to Leytonstone every day um, to go out there and start write, you know, writing music up there. We, me and Gary started uh, calling ourselves the Dub Hustlers. And then actually we even did a few live PAs, if if you can call it that. It's just, you know, the, it was back in the day again of like putting a DAP machine on, putting some keyboards yeah. on stage yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and pretending to press some keys. Um, so we did a few of those as well at Desert Quite Storm. similar to how it works now, actually. Yeah, not too far. <laughs> so we did a couple, I remember we did a couple live PAs at um, Desert Storm, Lee Valley. So yeah, that was, what year, shit, what was that? What year was that? So yeah, it was kind of like that was when I started getting to introduce to all of um because there's a guy called Junior who started had a label called Do or Die and he had he used to he was like he he knew like Chris and Paul and all that and Leon down at Music House. So that was when I yep. started getting to introduced to that world as well. <laughs> so it was almost like all these all these incremental steps kind of introducing me into the kind of like the what is now become sort of folklore, I suppose lore of, you know, of DMB. Um, in these places. Just to uh, just to clarify, Music House was, I mean, I know it is the place where people cut dub plates, but did they do mastering there as well? Yeah. So they, they'd mastered a few, like, I think Paul, Chris, or one of the two, mastered a couple of my early releases, the the Do or Die, Poison Records. Uh, there was, yeah, there was the Dub Hustlers one, I think they did. So yeah, they used to do, yeah, cut dubs and master as well. So they were mastering... Uh, traditionally they were mastering a lot of sort of like, like the reggae reggae acts and the you know the uk uk based reggae artists would go there um, yeah i remember going there for the first time and just yeah just Im- immediately having that kind of reggae thing just like it was like almost like the stereotypical uh reggae recording studio that place yeah. it was it was mad yeah it's a great place i miss it um yeah so yeah, I still again. What what year are we talking now? This would have been because this was all prior. Because I didn't really start going to. I didn't go to Trouble on Vinyl Renegade Hardware until about ninety four. I don't think. So right. yeah, so ninety three because there was the <coughs> there was the um, Carnival ninety three. Statistics as a release. That was a release on uh, on Arms House Recordings. So it would have been not too long after that. Because then also, what's his name? Because Timmy, Timmy Magic and PSG were all part of that crew as well. Um, right, who subsequently became big names in Garage. Yeah, Timmy and Spoonie and those guys, yeah. Yeah, because it was like, yeah, weird little sort of hanging, not so much hanging out, but I'd be literally going up there every day, seeing them, but just, be, I'm, in, I'm in the studio, just writing tunes, just trying to hone my craft, do you know what I mean? Not really knowing mm. what's going on, just but just enjoying being a part of it all. Um, and what kind of kit did they have at the studio about around then? Uh, he had, that would have been the S, I think we'd moved moved up to the S1000 by that time. Akai S1000. Sampler, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was mainly, everything was all based around that. I can't even remember what desk he had. I just know it was, it was still an Atari and it was just that and the, and the S1000. And then whatever you know, whether we were recording a VHS video, a cassette deck to record, you know, sample from, a record deck to sample from. And then, yeah, that was about it. There wasn't really much in the way of outboard. <laughs> right. I mean, that that, that sampler is, um, must have been responsible for, like, the amount of classic records over the years. It's incredible. Like, um, and it's using floppy disks and all that, right? Yeah, using floppy disks, and it didn't have that much sampling time, especially the nine fifty. That was no, it probably had like three seconds or something. Yeah, right? I think I think we're literally, I think we're talking kilobytes back then. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> um, 
to the point because it was like we had to. I remember, you know, you know, having to play, when sampling breaks off records, but you know, record them in at seventy eight and things like that, just to be able to squeeze right. that you know a bit of extra time out of it, and then you know just slow it down in the sampler. Yeah. <laughs> so was there a um. Yeah, you talked about like honing your craft and kind of um, you know putting, I guess putting the hours in until you can reach a point at which you're kind of happy with what you're doing. But so was there a like a like a like a turning point that you can look back on and say, oh, okay, that was the moment that it started happening, or was it more of a kind of like gradual thing? Uh, I think there there was a probably, I th- I think as um there was a couple sort of points where I like okay. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on the right path. I think when um, I did a, I did a release as Debridge on TOV. I think it was, um, oh God, it's terrible. I can't even remember the name of my own tunes. Uh, and uh, was that the first Debridge release, or when when does that name like date from? The first, yeah. When does it date from? I was called. I was called. I was called Debridge from the very, you know, back in the Sewage Monsters days. But it never, it never came on a record until actually until um, the Do or Die. Or I think it was Crash Test. I think it was called a track called Crash Test. Um, and as MCID was on the other side, he was. I think he used to DJ on Call FM. But I think when um, Keep It Real, that was a track. It came out on TLV and I, and I did a track and then crust or crust remixed it under gang related name and i was like uh, and that was like a big moment for me do you know what i mean like someone i who i'd looked up was remixing one of my tunes um and then i think when we when me and jason sort of because me and jason were down there separately doing stuff as he was maldini i was debridge and we were tov but we were going to um you know this was a time of blue note and whatnot and we were all going there and being influenced by you know what was coming out of that place so that's metalhead the metalhead's night at blue yeah note, yeah yeah so we were you know we were going down there and that was having an effect so we'd be coming back to the studio literally after you know and writing stuff and then it was like well none of the stuff that we're right, writing together is going to work on TOV it's not that kind of label so you know we made them pretty much basically made them start Renegade Hardware and then that was, when was that? That would have been late 94, early 95, I think. Um, yeah, so I was, I was listening to those records today and they are very sort of distinctive sonically, certainly compared to like the majority, I guess, of what was going on in Jungle at that time. It's, it's very kind of like minimal almost. It's kind of super stripped back. So, I mean, does that, I mean, how, how, like, how did, or do you, do, I mean, do you remember how that kind of developed? Or was it like a, yeah, was it something that you wanted to do? Or was it, I mean, obviously sometimes in the studio things just come out, but like, yeah. And how, how did that stuff like come about? I think, like I said, I think, you know, definitely Bluno had an influence. And then also what, um, uh, like No U-Turn had a, had a big influence as well, because we right, were yeah, really, yeah. really into what was going on over in that camp. Because Nico, Nico and Clayton, they were like, you know, they were, Good, good mates and metro store wasn't that far away where the where they were set up so you know when nico would come down to the studio and sort of engineer for us and we'd go to his studio and sort of learn from him as well so i think that sort of what you know what ed rush and trace and was, was were doing was like yeah we me and jason connected with 
Um, right, because their early records are on on No U Turn, right? Yeah. So like you yeah. know, at Subway and Kilimanjaro and Gumcheck. Yeah. So, so you know, sick, amazing tunes. Um, and just, <coughs> just. That- even, I mean, even even that stuff is. Um, I mean, that was I remember that at the time, and it's it's really um it's super dark that stuff. It's really like pretty aggressive music, but it's but it's not it doesn't have that kind of minimal thing, which I you know which which your early stuff. I mean, actually, a lot of your stuff down down the years has got that kind of super stripped back kind of aesthetic about it. But yeah, I mean, that really struck me as something that must have been like very very like. I think, but if if you li- but if you listen to their stuff, it is it is pretty minimal. It's just maybe just sonically, it doesn't sound it. But there's not much going on, do you know what I mean? It's a break, a bass, and a stab. Do you know what I mean? And it's about getting those things to work. And that's that's what I used to like. Do you know what I mean? Especially like with with, with the way Nico worked, it was you know, him on the mixing desk. He'd let the others sort of get on with it on the samplers and, and the arranging and everything. But he was all about on the mixing desk, which has always stuck with me and just kind of plugging in guitar pedals and you know, they, they weren't really about, he was, they weren't really about presets. Do you know what I mean? I think if you listen to their stuff, a lot of the sound repeats, it's, a lot of the stuff repeats itself in terms of the sound used, but it doesn't sound the same because he was always processing it differently every time. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, which I, which really, really um, stuck with me. Um, and just working, working w- with what you've got. So I think that definitely had an influence and what Ed Rush and what those guys were doing and especially you know with the, the step that they were coming with and just these different kind of the rhythms and stuff like that so we did what was the first release it was like Flash Gordon Jeep Beats I think and I think that and going back to the, the the other question of you know seminal moments it was like we you know we sent it to Groove Rider and he was like yeah this is some I think he named I think he even named it. I think he named it Jeep Beats. That was his. Right. He named the track. So that that was like another kind of like, oh right, sick. You know, riders recognise what who we are and what we're doing. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's. I mean, getting that validation from someone who you really look up to is. I mean, there's no substitute for it, is there? Yeah, exactly. Out. Yeah, exactly. So, and then was like, I think the first real was when we did. Um, Dead by Dawn, because that was because weirdly there was like because we were we were part of obviously TOV was considered to be jump up, and then Renegade Hardware was more you know the tech step or whatever you want to call it at the time, and the DMB had always had a lot of sort of infighting over the years of of different styles. Um, like the kind of subgenres and the ways people went. I wanted to ask you about that actually. Like, yeah, how, so how did you all kind of see those labels? Like, because I mean, it's they seem to the kind of casual observer sometimes to be quite arbitrary. And certainly with the um, you know, the intelligent label has got a bit of a bad name now. And like, yeah. yeah so how did how did all that stuff pan out? It was it. Uh, we used to me and Jason used to just sort of sit back and laugh, but it was kind of like. You know, because Renegade, I think Renegade had a lot of all of that thing covered because they had Trouble and Vinyl, which was the jump up. Renegade, which was the quote unquote intelligent. You know, they had a guy called Shogun who was like, who, you know, Bookham was really into all his stuff. So that he had that side covered. And then he had the Renegade hardware stuff as well. So he had all the, all three, the, the three distinct angles of DMB covered. Um, but yeah, there was just like, we, you saw this sort of split happening of of kind of like whether it was like what was going on down at Blue Note and then say 
what people like Hype on and Darren Jay and Nikki Black Market were playing was seen as almost it was almost like the 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 DMB it was almost like it's when drum and bass the the term drum and bass was being coined somewhat it, yeah. was, it was like it was trying to differentiate itself from that other other side of the scene yeah that in itself was quite contentious I seem to remember at the time yeah there was there was a lot of sort of people being pissed off with each other <laughs> um there was a lot of round table meetings i think there was i think it's I, i'm sure it's out there somewhere there was like a famous wasn't there of a a cool fm round table of, i remember hearing about that yeah so can, <laughs> can you enlighten me a little bit enlighten all of us uh, uh, as to what i can't down. i can't remember i just remember i just do remember i think goldie was on there and with goldie was just being goldie <laughs> <laughs> just pissed off a lot of people um uh and i think yeah it just I, I i can't even remember what he said but there must be a recording of it somewhere someone's got it um but i do i do remember like i think like i think like shy effects f- sort of musically fell out i think he maybe he maybe said something about shy because it was around because it was it around the time of mb as well but was it kind of like this kind of meeting and, and, and other meetings, no doubt, that went down? Was it kind of an attempt to sort of lay down laws or, or some kind of like, you know, uh, like rules in some kind of a, kind of a way? Because that's the kind of, that's the impression I had. But I'm, I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing which, which could quite easily be, yeah. you know, spun out to be not accurate. Well, I was, only, I was only privy to one of the later meetings that I actually went to, which was the, um, the, is, the is drum and bass getting too fast meeting? <laughs> oh wow really <laughs> yeah. amazing oh. you know so and, that, <laughs> and what, what what was the what was the you know how did that uh how was the decision i think we, uh, most of the people there agreed that it was getting too fast but and but so there was like this idea put out of like we should all if we all write five tunes at 164 bpm and we all share it then basically that's that's like you know we can pretty much start another start a new subgenre or scene or whatever or start do you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was it was like there was there was a lot of people there there was a lot of artists dj's labels distributors and um i, I don't think anyone really took it too seriously um right. it just kind of it was it was it was just it was an it was almost like the, the, it was a nice idea, but it just... <laughs> this is amazing. I've just got this like, kind of vision of like, you know, someone sitting as a chairman and kind of like, you know, reading the minutes and like... <laughs> I've still got the original, I've still got the original piece of paper from it. Wow, but, what the uh, agenda? The, yeah, it was just kind of like a thing someone printed out and give give out. <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've, got, I've still got it somewhere. I have a look at it every now and then just for a chuckle. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was always like... So sort of circling back, there was always these splits within the scene that was happening. And, you know, people from this side didn't really, didn't like what Jump Up was doing. They were calling it cheesy and clown step and all these whatever, do you know what I mean? And it was all the other sort of dark side devil business on the, on the other side. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But it was like, it was a weird, I remember a track Dead by Dawn was one of, was one of the tracks that got played on both sides of the scene. Um right. And that was really, for me, like a really big moment as well, just kind of like it wasn't just a a track that Ryder and all those guys were playing. It was a track that Hype and and all those guys were playing as well. Um, so that felt really, 
refreshing. And the same thing happened with the, with the nine. There was a, I think there was a bit of a split, and the nine was suddenly a tune that was getting played across the whole scene. Can I just let me just clarify um, how you how you're splitting there? So um, am I right in thinking that like Groove Rider is a bit more of a kind of serious, well, quote unquote, serious stuff, and Hype is a bit more of a jump up side? Is that is that how you were splitting it there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically, because yeah, okay. so, obviously Ryder had his, um, Ryder, Fabian Ryder, I think by this time they'd had their Radio 1 show going on as well. So that was like a, you know, it was a, it was a real thing to try and, you know, have Ryder play your tune on the radio and things like that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so it was that, you know, that track getting played across across the scene was just a, a real seminal moment for me. And I think, and it probably wasn't until the next one, the next big one was obviously the nine and... And then it was like, oh, actually, I can, I can actually sort of make a career out of this. So, so well, I mean, the nine is one of the biggest drum and bass tunes ever, right? So, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but it's almost like it felt. It, and I remember it was almost what. So it was ninety two, and the nine came out what December ninety eight, ninety no ninety ninety nine, two thousand. Yeah. So it was like eight years of eight years of graft before until I actually got to a point where I was actually, oh, I've made it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd done my apprenticeship, um, right? So, so let's um, yeah, let's okay, let's talk about by company then, seeing as we've we found ourselves here. How did how did that like come about in in the first place? What was the idea behind it? Well, it came about because basically Clayton tried to because again we were hitting this time where where um, there was interest from bigger labels not maybe not so much majors but sort of bigger independents and i think clayton, so clayton, sorry clayton was the guy who ran trouble on vinyl yeah, all that, clayton, all labels. yeah clayton and mark um and i think he i think i i get the feeling he got wind that someone he, he kind of realized that he hadn't signed us that he hadn't locked us down in any kind of deal um so he made an attempt to to sign me and jason and kane and who was a, there was Genotype, um, DJ Red. Uh, was there anyone else? I think there was. A, might have been a few other people as well. And tried to sign us in this deal, and we were just like, and he he kind of gave us an ultimatum. This is like you either sign it or go. So we were like, well, you're not really giving us a choice, mate. Because I think at the time as well, because it wasn't like he wanted to sign future forces he wanted to sign my name darren white so anything i did after that it's just kind of like nah yeah, that's, <laughs> not really, that's not really how it works is it <laughs> yeah it's not happening so we we left and dan fresh had come down to the studio prior to that actually and he was sort of he'd brought some tunes down he just had a release on him and vegas had a release on matrix's label called otto's way i think uh on metro um, so we were kind of doing doing stuff as well, and we'd done a, a release called "The Code," which was a pretty big tune as well at the time, which we famously wanted to put under the name "Bad Company," but Clayton didn't like the name. And then, as so that was a collab. Sorry, that was a collab with the three of you. Yeah, that was a free, yeah, with the three of us. But in he yeah. he out of spite left me off the off the uh, the the, um, the label off the off the sleeve. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whether it was that a spy, trouble I, was brewing. Then, yeah, okay. it was just kind of like it was just things, you know. This this isn't happening. Um, so yeah, we all left basically, and Dan was like, you know, come to ours and come to come to mine, and let's carry on just sort of writing music. So we pretty much spent the summer of I think it was the the summer of ninety eight or summer of ninety nine. Yeah, ninety eight, writing just writing music, just going up to uh, Maidenhead. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So um, what, did, what did leaving actually mean? So they had, they, had a, they had a studio which you were using to make all the music. Is that right? At Trouble on Vinyl. Yeah, well, we were kind of like, they'd... <sighs> Yeah, yeah, it's all sort of, sort of slowly coming back to me as well. Actually, it was like it, we because it, it was it was difficult because it was like they we they, there was sort of money coming in as such. Do you know what I mean? We I think I just started DJing as well, and then Clayton Clayton obviously that you know he was putting on the nights down at the end. So we would you know we would we would DJing and getting paid, and you know there was a certain amount of money coming in that we could survive off, as well as I think I was on the dole at the time as well, and. He was, uh, he basically had, we were like, well, you got, you need to pay us all this money. We just had uh, all these releases, all like quantum, our quantum mechanics album and all this stuff. And we hadn't been paid for it. So they were kind of almost like holding our, ran- our money to ransom as well. So me and Jason, we were like, all right. I remember we were kind of like, well, we need to, you know, we're going to need to get this money. So we, I suppose we kind of tricked them into paying us our money back. So we said, right, all right, we'll have, we'll talk to you. We'll have some talks, but in the good faith, do you know what I mean? You've got to, you've got to pay us our money and then we'll, and we'll sign. I think we even said, if you pay us our money, we'll sign. And then as soon as we, as soon as they did, we just like, yeah, fuck, fuck you, mate. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, no, I'm not having any of Because initially it was going to start a label with uh, DJ Red and Kane, I can't remember, we had a name and everything, but we just felt like that wouldn't have been, it almost like sonically, it was kind of like, well, me and Jason were were on one side of the scene, Kane and Red were on the other side. To have a joint label, it, it would have if almost like, maybe it'd be a bit confusing. Um, yeah. So so leaving was like, I guess a, a sort of bit of a wrench, but then, but you were, I guess, confident that there were, there was something immediate that you could just go into. No, I don't, I don't think I was confident. I just think it was, it was almost like I didn't have a choice. Do you know what I mean? But I was always like, we were, and I, you know, I think I actually got a job around that time. Finally, <laughs> I got, I was, I was, I think I was working as a kitchen porter in a, a Mexican restaurant in Crystal Palace. I remember that for a little while. And then I think I worked in the produce to put, no, no, that was before, before that. I was gonna. I worked in Sainsbury's for a little bit, um, and then. But I think I was pretty much. I was. I was signing on then. And back then, when it was just seemed to be a lot easier, kind of like you, you tell the government you wanted to make music and they couldn't really find you anything to do, so they'd just tell you to come back in two weeks. You know. So, um, I think we because uh, once we got the money, it was like, that was able to tide us over. 
and we bought a little bit of equipment. We had enough to sort of buy ourselves our own little setups. I think that's all right. Um, but I just, I think that we basically, we, when we was working with Dan, Dan had a mate who was loaded basically. And it was another situation of kind of like borrowing money from someone to kind of get the setup that we needed. So we borrowed like two grand from his mate and bought, spent a grand on a pair of Mackie HR824s. And then I think we spent the rest on getting the record pressed and getting the nine. Yeah, I think we got them. Did we, I don't think, yeah. Did, I'm not sure if we had a distribution deal then. I think we can't, we might have even done it ourselves. Um, so like to, to what extent was there a, like a sort of plan for the project? Like before, because um, obviously the, the, you know, when the nine came out, that was a huge impact. But you know, to what extent had you kind of thought through what you wanted to do sort of artistically before that? as a group we 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 didn't really we didn't work like that it was almost like it was just kind of i don't think we it was not the kind of thing we sort of sat down and discussed or anything or anything we just wanted to just make music um and if we had a kind of there was a connection there in terms of what we were into and what how we wanted to express it so i think it was just let's just just write and write and write and do and just do stuff do you know what i mean not really the outcome didn't really was wasn't of any importance, which is still which is something I'm, which is still true to to you know today with me. It's just kind of I don't really think about the end goal at all. We just want to write music for the sake of writing music and enjoying the process. And then once we've got all this stuff, we sort of you know sit back and be like, which one do you think is which which do we what, which one should we put out? We should put something out. Which one should we put out? Yeah, we all like that one. Cool. What should we put on the other side? Yeah, that. You know what I mean? It was almost as simple as that it was there's there's no there's no hard and fast plans um so so i was but there been any change in the way you were working in the studio um because there were four of you by that point when at what point did, did all that come together it was it was difficult at, at times definitely do you know what i mean but we kind of like, I, the one thing we did say at the beginning was but we you know we wanted to start this thing this group called bad company but it almost like it didn't matter who wrote the tunes. It was like it all goes under under the name, and we'll put who wrote the tunes on the, in the in the fine print kind of thing. But in terms of bad company, can be any combination of of, four, of the four of us. So that was the only real sort of prerequisite, so to speak, um, of any of anything we done. So, but it was. I think the, when we did inside the machine that that album that was cool. It was just us hanging out in. in in the studio which was in dan's attic just literally yeah literally for for a whole summer just writing 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 and then we and that you know at the end of it this is you know we came out with came out with this album it was it was when i think when dan moved his studio to we moved to Hampstead. that's that's when that's when things changed a bit in where like the studio became more one player do you know what I mean? It was like it's one because it was in Dan's house. We'd have to travel up to it, but it was set up to kind of work around him. Do you know what I mean? Because it was in his. It was more more his setup that we were, we were adding bits. We all had bits bits of equipment that were part of it and collectively, but it was definitely set up around him. So that's when also when I think you know the whole BC sound changed as well because it was yeah i mean it's it it changed quite a lot actually in a fairly short period of time because (laughs) um but i I think the whole sound of drum and bass 
um, changed as well, though, in, in that period. So it was probably a reflection of that as well as, you know, just you know, just the, the different um, methods of working and, and all that. But so, I mean, <laughs> by the sound of it, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure you were a little bit, you felt a little bit alienated by the way the music developed generally. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I was just, I just wasn't in it. Do you know what I mean? I think, mm, yep. I think it was um, a few, a, f- a few different factors. I think it's like it was the advent of of AIM, AOL, Instant Messenger. You know, people sending. There was this now. There was this ability to send music to people very quickly, and also, and also the advent of CDJs. So it was kind of like the whole, the technology was sort of like changing as we were, you know, as we were developing as a group. So it, it you know, it got to the stage where I'd be, you know, cause I lived in South London and, you know, Dan's up in Hampstead in North London. Jason was also in South London. You know, we'd, it was it'd start a tune. Okay, cool. Sounds great. Go home, come back. By the time you come back, a lot of it's changed and Andy C had it already. Do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> so it was like, and he was like, a bit like, but what about, uh, yeah, but yeah, Andy says he really likes it. Yeah, of course Andy says he really bloody likes it because it's a PC tune and he's got it before anyone else. And it's, you know what I mean? And now you've, gi- you've given it to him on Thursday night. He's now down at Music House getting it cut, no doubt. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like that was taking over and it just became really, because the instantaneousness of it all, it became really difficult to work in that situation. Um, And I just found myself sort of in the studio looking over Dan's shoulder and just being like, I can't be arsed with this. Do you know what I mean? Um, But presumably you've been playing a lot of shows as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was really bad, which may be the word, actually, I'm thinking about it from a psychological point of view. That may have something to do with why I have a really bad time playing my own music. <laughs> Just because I didn't really used to play the BC stuff. Jason did. Do you know what I mean? I'd play the stuff in between. That was when we, when we do, because we'd go out in pairs in the back-to-backs. Yeah, I'd be playing other stuff, other people's stuff rather than ours. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, it, that was another thing that stuck with me from that... Uh, Red Bull interview you were saying that DJing kind of turned into a sort of competition to get the most rewinds and now oh god yeah <laughs> you won't be that and I have to say that completely resonated with my experience in as a dubstep DJ and really what made me want to stop doing it and want to you know play house and techno and all that stuff was just the the kind of like arms you know um <laughs> rewind arms race you know yeah just, oh. oh it was bullshit Do you know I mean I hate I hated it and it's it was and it was, but it was, it was annoyingly, it was like, you, you knew that everyone in on the night was going to play the same tunes that were going to get rewound. So it's, it was, yeah, it just became really boring. Yeah. I I think I, I struggled though, because towards the end, because obviously I was earning really good money, but I was ultimately really unhappy at the same time. Um, just not enjoy, not enjoying it, and it was it was it was a difficult transition towards the end of BC as well. Um, but yeah, just that whole dub, dub plate wars, and it's just kind of like this, this is really, this is yeah, it's really boring. This whole need to kind of because it was because it was also it was really getting to um, 
magnifying this whole thing of like, oh, that tune's that tune's um, big. What have they done in that tune that's made it big? <laughs> so then, do you know what I mean? So then it became a it be, then it became a thing of like because we were the big thing. Suddenly, at certain points as well, we sounded like really bad versions of ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Because other other people were doing what we were were, were doing at the time. You know, and so it's like, and, you, and that still goes on now. I think within within DMB and maybe just in music in general, this kind of like is it sort of self referential kind of need to kind of like oh what's big let me do a version of that oh uh, yeah i mean people copy each other absolutely and when something's successful loads of people <laughs> always jump on it don't they like, yeah and i guess that's the that's the problem with being a an influential act which you guys obviously were like massively you know yeah so yeah so but i think in some ways it was probably good that we were kind of like it was we burned bright for a fair few for about what 99 to 2002 so we only had like a three year three-year run yeah and then we got out of there (laughs) (laughs) so did you i mean did you find yourself kind of falling out with the genre a little bit during that during that period oh yeah i I fucking hated it um (laughs) yeah i was just i just couldn't listen to it i couldn't it was doing doing my brain in weirdly i think maybe i'm going through the same thing in a minute it's not i just don't hate it it's just kind of like it's just not it's not exciting it didn't excite me anymore do you know what i mean so that, but thankfully back then, it's like my brother was around. So that's what I used to go and, you know, go and hang out with him. And he was, you know, see what he was into. He was, he was, I think he was writing um, vintage high tech for K7 at the time. And I, you know, I, I helped with a couple of tracks on that. And it was hang, just, it was nice just hanging out with him. And he sort of introduced me to Dilla. You know, he was getting all these because Dilla was sending him like beat CDs because he'd done, Dilla had done the, the remix of Eve. So suddenly there was this whole other world of kind of like what I, you know, because I just like to be excited. Do you know what I mean? And it was just like, wow, what is, what the hell's going on here? Um, yeah, well, I mean, going from like, you know, a pretty, um, I don't know, a pretty stiff drum and bass scene to, to Jay Dilla's, a, you know, that's a breath of fresh air, right? <laughs> yeah. To put it mildly. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was amazing just kind of hearing all this, all that stuff and just having this sort of emotional and musical reset and this sort of, sort of reflecting on what it, I'd been a part of and what I was doing and what I needed to do going forward. And it, and I just didn't, and it wasn't that, do you know what I mean? It wasn't what was going on within BC and drum and bass. Well, it was, I think it yeah. was, but I just, I just found that that, that side of DMB, that it was, it was almost like rather than it being a, I think this is when the, there was another transition of splits where, where before you had a style split, whether it was jump up and then, you know, tech step or whatever you, the word you want to use, there was now a sort of a monetary split of commercial and underground. Do you know what I mean? that that was what that was the new split within dmb and i didn't really f- didn't f- I, I just wasn't resonating with what was going on with the this it, it hasn't it wasn't quite quite commercial in sense of like you know um top of the pops yet but it was commercial in the sense it was bigger crowds obviously you know it means the the sort of festival bookings and things like that were coming in it was becoming that kind of, it was, it was the infancy of that. Do you know what I mean? 
yeah, I guess that's I guess that's the probably the moment that I I would I think at the time I kind of saw it as being a bit of a sort of precarious moment and com- you know comparing it to Garage again like the the kind of early two thousands moment in Garage which it, which really didn't really didn't recover from at all but with John Bass that that eventually kind of worked itself out in a way but I mean that that moment of um yeah those just I guess when you whenever you have like a lot of people jumping on something and and suddenly there's more money and more exposure and just like Mm. that's that's always that always puts a lot of pressure on the people doing making the music I guess yeah so I just kind of like when I I think coming out of working with working with my brother and being influenced by say Dilla, Wajid, Bling 47 and all these kind of things it was like I then found more of a there was, a, I found more of a connection with <clears throat> the other godfather, Fabio, and what he was doing. Do you know what I mean? Really? Okay, right, yeah. Down at, um, down at the end with, uh, what was, it, what was the name of his night again? Jesus Christ. You know, I'm, I'm also blanking on it, but I went to it many times. <laughs> yeah, down, you know, down at the bar in in, uh, in the end. Um, and then, you know, with Calibre and what he was doing, and that resonated with me more. And I could hear the similarities between you know the samples the sample choices and and musically what was was what was going on i I just felt more of a connection with that because i still loved i loved dmb as a genre and what i felt it was it was and can do do you know what i mean what it was it's i i was always kind of really inspired by the fact that it could piece together so many different sources do you know what i mean so many different almost like you could piece together something from a, a hundred different genres and create a drum and bass tune so that was that was something that i kind of like i want i felt like i wanted to explore more so it felt like there was still more that dmb could do for me or, or how i wanted to express my version of it and i yeah i found that in over in yeah over in a, a creative you know with fabio and those guys um and i think when did i when did i because that was 2003 and I was still working with, I, I think I was still living with, with um, Jay and Mick at the time up in Golders Green, but I knew, and we were still, we were still as well. We were still doing bad company tunes. We were still like, because Dan had started Breakbeat Chaos, was it called, with um, Adam F and he was off doing his own thing. Because this also, this was after the whole thing with vinyl distribution, like going down and owing us a ridiculous amount of money so yeah let's 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 just talk about that for a moment because that's that's a story in itself and and the way uh um distribution kind of like resolved itself out of that so so fine distribution was was the dominant yeah. um distributor of of certainly of of john and bass records right in the 90s and yeah. early 2000s so so what so what happened <sighs> what happened <laughs> <laughs> I, I only know bits of it, do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, I know that there was some sort of, there was criminals involved and people owed people money, which is the usual thing with all this kind of shit. And then I think they just ended up using the company's money to pay off <laughs> any money that was owed. Um, so a Ponzi scheme, basically. Uh, something like that. It was, it got, it got pretty dark. I think, uh, it's almost like it doesn't feel like my story to tell. Do you know what I mean? Um, well, I mean, but you got your fingers burned though, right? Pretty badly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, you know, it was like uh, 120 grand or something. I think, I think uh, also, who else got, I know Ed and Optical Virus got burned for, must, they must have been about, had been about 50, 60 grand or something like that. 
um, and who the numerous other labels, do you know what I mean, as well. But in a way, it was our own fault, do you know what I mean, as well, at the same time as it was like, we weren't, we didn't, we weren't managing ourselves properly. We were so caught up in the, in the moment, so to speak. And we were, you know, we were earning great money as, as DJs. It's almost like that, the, the money from the records didn't really count anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like we could, we didn't f- really think about it. We didn't, we weren't, we didn't really care how many we were selling. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. So let me ask you, let me ask you, um, out of, out of that, um, situation with with vinyl distribution, SRD and and SD Holdings sort of emerged and became the two sort of biggest players in distribution. Yeah, and I, you you and you were you'd started Exit by then, I think. Is that right? Yeah, you had. I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, and I yeah. and you were you were with SRD, weren't you? Because I was I was we were with um we were with SD Holdings with Hot Flush, and what I wanted to ask you was like, what was the like the con- what was the contribution that that those distribution companies made to your label because I know that um, ST were, were really, really they were a really big thing in the development of Hot Flush, and it got me thinking. Um, you know, comparing that input to the way distribution companies work now with 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 labels and the degree to which it's changed. So, like, what what kind of input did SRD have, and then how do you think about how um, how that kind of paradigm between distribution companies and 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 labels um, how's how's that changed over time? Well, I think it was almost like with SRD, it was the first time, obviously, we, we were actually paying attention, do you know what I mean, to to the releasing of records. Before, it was just kind of like, okay, get the records, master it, and get someone to do the artwork, do you know what I mean? But this time, it was kind of like, it was more going have meetings with them, discuss, like, discuss releases and release, release dates. And it was almost like, well, actually, you're running a business here, do you know what I mean? It's not it's fun and everything, but there's a serious side to it and you need to really be aware of that side of it. So I think SRD, and it was also, it was like, it was nice to really, because vinyl distribution were quite faceless in some respects as well. Do you know what I mean? We didn't, because they were, well, they were based in Reading. I think we knew there was a few heads down there, but we didn't really know the ins and outs of the, of the business and how it was run. But, you know, with people like uh, Rico, Paul and Dan, um, down at SRD, I think it was Emma's down at Emma Wildchild. It was like there was, it felt like there was a connection there with with the people who are actually putting our records into the stores, and the same with um, ST Holdings and Chris. He was he was really passionate about the music, so it was. I think that was um, because you know also as well where with vinyl we were paying for everything ourselves as well so they you know but with with SRD and SD Holdings it was this whole thing of like the um, getting a, a pressing and distribution deal do you know what I mean so so this was someone putting their own money into your development and having faith in what you do as an artist to be able to fit you know to think that you can sell records so that was that was a you know a definite shift and and a, a new way to look at what what was going on. Because um, I think we, after what happened with, because now, yeah, because after what happened with Vinyl, we went, you know, we went to SRD. Um, and then again, when it's, when BC let, bro- broke up, it was kind of like, you know, went to speak to them and, you know, have, have if they can offer me a and d deal. Did I, I don't know, did I distribute with SRD or did I go straight to ST Holdings? I can't even remember. According to that, uh, <laughs> according to that Rebel interview, you were, you were with SRD at the time. 
Okay. There's <laughs> <laughs> so much going on, Paul, mate. Do you know what I mean? Um, yes. Well we, well, we were with ST and Chris, yeah, Chris Parkinson, who you just referred to, was just incredibly helpful. And I, yeah. you know, I probably wouldn't be here now, to be honest, if it wasn't for him. Um, and I think he, he manages Caliber now, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he looks after he looks after Dom, but the, it was like you know they had their own problems as well. It's just like it's always some it's always something. Do you know what I mean, um, well, I mean, what I think what happened with ST is that the, you know the the advent of digital music happened, and like so many other businesses in music, they you know weren't quite prepared for it. You know, yeah, so. well, yeah, yeah, and no, they kind of in some ways they weren't, but I think Chris Chris was. Chris was, um, and but his brother wasn't. So maybe because we'd done uh, when we did a bunch of cuts, which was our first sort of like digital thing, which was you know just who was it? It was like Solar Signature Bass Bin Thirty One, or you know all of us, all of our labels did, being digitally available through this through this. Uh, what were they called? I I think Music. Do you remember them? right yeah so, okay. yeah there was like this, this yeah there was there was very there was, early kind of aggregator yeah right. super early but um yeah i think i went i went with s when, when i started exit i think maybe i can't sh- i'm not sure when the shift was but the, i think it, it was more like i just felt that st was a better fit with what i was trying to do because uh, i remember because S, srd were definitely more Again, there was that, like I said, you know, that commercial underground split. Right. SID were more geared towards that and seemed to be more, con- con- like John Knight and those guys seemed to be more concerned about the money. Rico, not so much. Rico was definitely, he was a music man, more concerned about numbers, whereas ST was more concerned about, you know, the the substance, the music. So that's why, you know, I think that's why I went with them in the end. Mm. So, I mean, so the second half of my question was like, like how's that changed do you think over time in terms of the way distribution companies um like contribute to the development of labels like now like so i mean just in the in the context of of exit how's it changed and how do you think it would be like if you were starting now i'm not sure how it would be because I, I you know thankfully you know i've got to the stage where i again it's sort of like you when you take take note take a bit more pay pay attention of the business you actually realize that you know as convenient as a and d deal is financially it doesn't always doesn't always make sense as well do you know what i mean it's like it, it's better to do it if you can afford to press press it yourself and just have them distribute it um so that was that was kind of like something i when i once i got a label manager on board as you know we kind of like we sat down i was like right we need to be doing this ourselves so that that is uh that definitely changed the way the business has run um and we did that quite early on, quite almost bef- before, like you know, Spotify and the whole digital revolution came along. But I think it will always be. I think there, the role of a distributor shouldn't ever be sort of discounted in terms of like its development of of scenes because they were the ones sort of putting the money in, you know, behind these artists and behind these acts before there was an ability for people to be able to get their music out to people so easily. So if you know if it, you know it's not it's not cheap like mastering and pressing a record. Um, if you're just you know it's just starting out, it's it, you know but they had the capital to do that for for people, and I think their role within 
within um, music, dance music in the UK as a whole shouldn't be understated, you know, in like what the labels that they funded and, and helped create as, um, is, is massive. Do you know what I mean? So I think if, if I started now, I, yeah, I, I probably, I don't know. Do, do you even need them now? It's as sad as it is. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, I guess I guess the way I look at it is um, like back in those days, like a big part of what they were offering was a relationship with the shops. So, like the way the way sales worked is like, um, yeah, there'll be a, at each shop there'd be someone, a buyer who'd be on the phone at each week to distributors, and they would tell tell them you know what they had and what was you know, and they and they would sell the record for you, I guess, to an extent. Yeah. Anyway, um, and I suppose like like the equivalent of that now is is pitching to to dsps right and it sounds quite sad when you put it like that you know it's a bit of a depressing development but i mean if you're talking about like what like value does a distributor add i guess it's 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 that right but it's not really equivalent I, Mm. i i don't think really just certainly in terms of like building the name of of artists and building the name of, of your label. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, D- DSPs don't look at labels in the same way anyway as record shops used to. So it's not, it's not quite yeah. the same in that respect. Well, no, it's, it's been, I think, you know, they've had to, they've had to adjust and change because it was like, you know, as, as a label as well, we were like, you know, once we started our own shop front or web store, suddenly it's almost like, well, it actually makes more sense for us to sell our records direct to customer. Do you know what I mean? It's a site, and we because we're going to get a better return than if we sell to the shops. So the sh- the shops have had a str- you know they've had a a struggle, and and the distributor has sort of been that buffer between the artist or the label and and the shop, and just trying to sort of negotiate that deal. Do you know what I mean? And try and and try and get records into into these record shops. Um, and I guess that's in the context of, of the whole just market contracting for vinyl in the last 20 years, right? Because it's just been a kind of slow decline. Yeah, 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 it has been, yeah, it's been a slow decline. But it's, just, it's, it's, very, it's very niche, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, an, it's a very niche market and it's like, it's, I always, I, I never sort of saw my label as, as something that would, would, would never release, put something out that wasn't on vinyl. Um but at the same time, you kind of sort of have to accept that that may is and may be the case. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, as a even just sort of getting on, like you know, I'm a dad of two kids, and it's like it's not the most environmentally conscious product. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's got <laughs> it's got its problems. Do you know what I mean? So it's like there's there's that side of it that I'm, I'm sort of aware of as well. So. Yeah, I think, you know, dis- distributors have, um, you know, that's why you've now, you know, you've got people like Unearthed who they, they sort of do the, um, the logistics or, you know, the, um, the posting of our, our stuff. You know, they've had to change their their business model because they came out of um, when ST Holdings disappeared. They sort of grew out of that. And they've, you know, they've had to adapt the same way we all have. And then, you know, they still offer... P and D's, but they're almost better placed to, to be able because they're because they're acting as the the distributor for for say labels like me and doing the back end of things. They can see what does and doesn't sell from in a <clears throat> excuse me 
in a broader sense. So they can be able to offer P&D deals to kind of labels and people who approach them knowing a bit like, actually, yeah, actually, he'll probably sell around X. Do you know what I mean? And then through that, they've had to offer, you know, literally become a record shop in themselves. You know, so they've got you got their portal whereby I think even record shops buy from them as well and cut customers as well. So it's like everyone's adapting and, 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 uh, and changing and, they've, and, you know, they've done a good, good, good job of it. Yeah. I think there's a lot of different sort of business models basically um, yeah. growing up and, you know, adapting to the various changes, which kind of can still continue to happen. Actually. It's, I don't think like there hasn't been like a full resolution of the way like the business works at all you know it's a, you know, the whole nft thing for example is like you know there's a whole other you know can yeah. of worms which like you know <laughs> people are dipping their toe into but like you know the whole thing just just carries on anyway um i wanted to okay so i want to ask you about autonomic but before we get into that i want to ask you a specific question about um well <laughs> about government legislation actually because like there's there's two as far as i can see there's like there's two pretty significant changes that have happened in the last 25 or so actually nearly 30 years um the first one is the criminal justice act of 1994 and the second one was the smoking ban which happened in 2007 and there's not well i mean i was i started going raving in like 95 or something so like they'd already that, that kind of quite big thing i mean I, i'd seen the, the criminal justice act been been talked about and like read, read, read all the articles about it but i wasn't really aware of you know the kind of practical effects that it had um but actually with the smoking ban it was like just in your face like if mm. you were a dj at that time it was like you couldn't miss it you know it was a, it was a huge change so tell me about those two things and how and and you know what your experiences of them were there what your sorry what your experiences of them were and how they um with similarities. Um, I think because well, the criminal justice bill was when? What was that? It was 94. 94. Okay, so... I f- and, ju- and just, so, just to clarify that for anyone who's not aware, um, that was um, passed by the Home Secretary at the time, Michael Howard, and they essentially like criminalised like, criminalized repetitive beats. They literally, re- they literally named, used the term repetitive beats in the legislation to really kind of clamp down on big... A question to be licensed raves basically is the long and short of it yeah i just well it's almost it's just one of those things it's like people people will find a way do you know what i mean because i think that was like uh, it's almost like i I didn't really care about any of that stuff do you know what i mean personally because i think the only i you know i knew that you know when i went to when we did castle morton and i knew that that had a that was partly responsible for why they. It's almost got to the point where the government was like, "Oh no, he's like taking the piss." Um, it was, yeah. So just, just what go on? What was what was that exactly? Well, it was it was like a free party that lasted for a what? I think it lasted for a week. You know, there was there was there was that whole thing of like the travellers were sort of moving around and going travelling around. UK and it was this convoy of, of pretty much convoy of sound systems looking for somewhere to set up, um, and they ended up in Castle Morton. And I personally, I remember you know because I lived there, they they locked off all the roads in and out. But because we I, we knew the area, we knew ways in that they for some reason they didn't. <laughs> so we we we, should, we pretty much were coming and going as we pleased. Um, but yeah, the police refused. You know they couldn't couldn't get in there was all these i remember there was all these talks of like oh um 
kids, kids as young as 12 selling acid. And the, but what I remember it was like, yeah, there was kids sort of walking around with buckets, trying to sort of getting um, donations to, for, for petrol to keep the generators going. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that was the only misuse of, I saw. Um, so that, I think, and for me, that was like, that was just, that was an amazing party. So I kind of like, I get, I can't, it's almost like I could, I, get, I understood why, why they wanted to bring this, this bill in. But I think my experience of it was like, well, seeing how we as an industry adapt to it. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was almost in, then, then it was kind of like, it was the, the turn of the licensed clubs. Do you know what I mean? You had, this is when the sort of, sort of for me, like the end was, you know, that was that was a big thing fabric was coming through um bar rumba and that affected the music as well didn't it it must have yeah but i yeah i suppose it did but i think it affected it in a good way especially especially the end i think the end had a great a positive impact on on dance music on our scene anyway just just in the terms of the way the way that club was set up you know the the sound was the sound was amazing just the whole vibe of the place of where the dj booth was and everything all these little little things you know having a little a little water fountain outside that cuz they knew every they knew people were were taking ease do you know what i mean so yeah it's like just just let them drink <laughs> do you know what i mean so it's <laughs> like so just it was very it was almost they were being very res- like honest and honest about it and responsible so i i just for me i only saw the 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 positives do you know what i mean i think that obviously it, it did there were those those negatives of try, trying to shut down these events and trying to shut down these, these parties but again i think because i was so entrenched in making music and being a part of the of of my sort of in my bubble i didn't really I didn't really notice any because I didn't have a TV. I don't remember at the time as well, so I wasn't really didn't really care. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't be, that wasn't being I wasn't an influence to me. And then later in the smoking ban, when when was that again? That was so yeah, first of July two thousand and seven. Which by which time you were you know playing out a lot, right? And it's yeah. I think it must have well I, I know because I was as well, and it was extremely uh, noticeable. You know the change in people's behaviours. Me, yeah, anyway. yeah, it was, it was, it, it was, again, it was like a, it's almost like, because I remember there we had a, I think it was a black pocket uh, night at Plastic People on the last day that you could smoke in the clubs. Yeah. Um, and, and we just, we blazed in there. <laughs> we, we, we literally like, we blazed that place up. And I think that was, an, I got a feeling that was the night that, um, we got who do we have down there? Charlie Dark, Hudson Mohawk, and it was myself. Abby Soul Jazz was there. Remember Fatima was there. So yeah, that was that was a that was a sick. I just remember that being a really sick night. And but then after that, it was just kind of like, oh, this club. Well, you know, when it kind of like it's almost like when the dust settled and the air's cleared, it's like, oh, actually, these clubs stink, don't they? <laughs> yes, I, I just noticed it's like there was a heightened sense of smell. That's kind of like. Wow, do you know what I mean? You just coke farts and just like, oh my god, this place is disgusting. And then clubs started burning joysticks. But then it was almost like having to having to adjust to, you know, you're playing and then looking up and like, where's everyone gone? 
bitch. You know what I mean? It's like they've all gone outside for a cigarette. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I mean, like the like what the way I was kind of thinking about it, I guess, and I'm kind of like the way I've gradually come around thinking about it is that it's it kind of really placed the kind of pressure on DJs to just hammer it harder, you know, to stop give stop giving people that opportunity to like okay um you know, this, this is all gone down a little bit now i'm gonna go and have a have a smoke i mean did did you yeah did i you suppose you could yeah. uh i guess i get i guess so i think so there was like the advent of the we used to go was it there was there was no such thing as a warm-up dj anymore everyone was just a fry up do you know what i mean it's just straight it was <laughs> <laughs> just just going full ham uh, from the opening set, just because for fear of everyone <laughs> disappearing. Uh, but, you know, it was, again, it was just a, a sort of a period of adjustment, I think. I think it, it was it was disheartening for a while. I remember, you know, you kind of like, you think you're doing our great and you look up and then after, after dance floor's gone, you think you've, you've played something wrong. But, you know, it's just as simple as they're going for a cigarette. Um, it was, we, I think we, we, it, you're right. It, I think there was that effect on on people's sets, but for only for those people who just who weren't really, what's the word? I don't know. People maybe just maybe weren't there for the right reasons in the first place. I don't know. Just maybe you just weren't comfortable with them with themselves. It's almost like it's just kind of like it's okay. Do you know what I mean? Don't worry. They'll come back. It's just like or. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, um, okay, so this is a kind of neat segue then into into autonomic, which is obviously very much of a kind of left field take on the whole drum and bass thing. And it was something that I was super, super into at the time, as you as you know. Yeah. Um I found it extremely inspiring actually what you guys did with that. So um I guess like comparing it to to how bad companies started, did you the three of you go into it in a in a slightly different way, like I mean, you said mentioned that you know, bank bank company wasn't planned at all. You just making tunes and, and kind of cracking on with it. Was was autonomic kind of similar to that, or was it was a different dynamic? Yeah, definitely. I think it was. Um, I met them down at um, Swerve. There you go. He came, finally came back to ah, me. Ah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's I met I met them down at Swerve, um, and it was their you know it was their release uh, instrumental. When I heard that uh, the track Naked Zoo on Marcus's Marcus Intellect's label Solar and I was just kind of like it literally just kind of blew my mind like what in the hell is this and who wrote this and who the hell are instrumental and I just yeah it just went down there and we just we got you know we got talking and just kind of like we just found that we had a lot in common just in terms of equipment and our, look, our outlook and they you know they they you know they'd kind of come up with um Jim and Source Direct and again, sort of knew Nico as well. And I, you know, I knew Nico. So there was these sort of connections there. And they just, and, um, and I think they just, you know, they liked what I was doing in terms of what I was DJing. Cause I was, I was DJing down at Swerve at the, around that time as well. Um, so they, you know, they invite, invited me up to the studio. He says, oh, you should come up. And it was just kind of one of those ones just walking into the studio. And it was just like, literally just like going back in time, just be like, Holy, because as as bad company, we 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 embraced the whole digital revolution. We you know we plugins and all that kind of all that world. And I'd had all this. Uh, I I I knew I'd built up a collection of equipment, 
but I'd sort of given it out to people and because kind of like it, I didn't, because I was just using my laptop, I didn't need to, do you know what I mean? I didn't need them. I didn't need the desk and this and that compressor and all that. Um, so then suddenly going to the studio and just seeing all like, holy shit. It's like, you guys, you're, <laughs> you're still, you, you're using all this. Like, and I've got that. I've got one of them. I've got, and so we just, we just, well, I don't know. We just sort of hit it off in terms of, a vibe and I think I just because it was around 2009 and I was r- trying to write my album my the Gemini principal album and they when we did a collab on their bl- uh, blush response and I just I just loved just loved what they were doing and just loved their their approach to it all and what um what drove them and what kind of they're very they're, they're very different people Al and Bod as you probably well know um and but that sort of sort of um, the difference between them is what kind of made Instra what it was, um, and I just I didn't want to sort of disturb that. I almost like try, I was trying to become a sort of like a an addition to what they were doing. I wanted to you know um, I wanted to be able to add to it in some way and learn from them as well. And so yeah, it was just kind of like we just started writing stuff and. Again, it was like another like because I lived in Jesus. Where did I live then? Stoke Newington, and they they were all the way out in on the last stop on the uh, out past Heathrow. So yeah, so it's, it's the same studio that Al is in now, right? It's the yeah. zoo. Yeah, the zoo. So I used to travel there. So I used to take me what I used to commute pretty high every day. It was like a, <laughs> that's a long way as well. Yeah, it was a long old journey. Do you know what I mean? So just but you'd really obviously just make make the most of it. Um, and it was. It was just really organic. Do you know what I mean? It was just kind of like writing all this stuff and they were writing all this stuff on their own as well. And it was sort of influencing the stuff I was making as well because I was kind of feeding off it and working, going down to, um, you know, DJing down at Swerve. And then what it literally sort of started off like as a, a 10, 15 minute section of my mixes in the middle, the middle of my set, I'd be playing a lot of their stuff and what we were doing at the time and it, it was you know people would look at it like what the hell are you doing and what is it what are you playing do you know what I mean what's that's it, it was almost like that's not DMB, and it's just well it is it's just not what you think DMB is do you know what I mean so and I think that was in some ways what inspired the the podcast whereby we wanted to kind of you know, I remember it's like me and da- uh, Damon sitting down. It's like, like, yeah, we should do, you know, we should do do something, do like, do like a podcast, and then so we can sort of bring bring what we're doing and what we're hearing other people doing together into one into this place, so you know people can sort of, sort of connect with it in in the in that in the same way that we've connected with it, um, which is why we kind of. Which is why it's sort of the podcast came about, and also we wanted with it as well, with the way that we formatted the podcast as well, which is kind of like because I remember, especially in D and B, everyone was really guarded about their influences and their sources and things like that. But we we, we were just kind of like we wanted to be open with all of that information. We'd like this is who we're into. This is this is what music we love. This is what's influencing us, influencing us. And if you listen to this mix in the middle, you can hear that. Do you know what I mean? You can hear where those influences are coming into play. The only plan that we had is that I think I was very adamant of like, we should just do a set number. Do you know what I mean? We should just like, 
let's just just and get, and then we've kind of like we've got a goal to sort of look forward to or because i i don't want to be sort of sort of flogging a dead horse kind of thing do you know what i mean it's just like overdoing it and overkilling so it's just like and we and i was i was really sort of really big on this whole idea of like um it's something i'd sort of done throughout my career kind of playing off suspicion fashion and rumors kind of thing do you know what i mean it's just kind of like that whole what's that what's going on there why you know why is that all grayed out and why is there only you know what's what's coming next when's that coming it's almost like we sort of are trying to feed into kind of the create i suppose create a hype in a way around it um weirdly but and it seemed to it worked <laughs> to be fair um the hype was great man it really was, was yeah totally. yeah it took was, it was it was like it was weird watching it grow because i think by the time we got to 10 i think it was i think by the time we got to layer 10 we were we were on a world tour do you know what i mean and then you know the fabric fabric live cd you know the 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 residency at fabric and it was just all off the back of this of this this podcast series that we created um and i think we took it there it was a year gap between layer 11 and layer 12 it was just kind of like, it's like I've got we've got to, I've got to get this finished. We have to do it. Do you know? What I mean? So it was we, always supposed to be twelve. And you yeah, had it was the last always one yeah, it was always going to be tw- it was always going to be twelve. Um, and it's still there. The website club autonomicscom It's still there. I've I still pay the fees to keep it going. Yeah, it was, I was on there today. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, as long as as long as I've got some money in the bank, that site will still be there. <laughs> Okay. Um all right, I've 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 kept you ages. I want to ask you one more thing. Yeah. Um which is about albums. Um it's a topic I've asked almost well, I think I've asked everyone about it who's been on the on the podcast so far. And everyone um like I think albums seem to be a kind of almost a kind of romantic thing for for producers. Yeah. Um and in a way which is I, I guess completely understandable. And I'm I'm exactly the same. I love albums. But I mean, obviously, the way people sort of listen to music has changed, and you know the the changes in the um, in the in the wider industry that we've kind of touched upon a bit um, have meant that the app, the kind of format generally is a you know obviously it's like fallen out of favour to to an extent. But I just wanted to ask you about your albums because you've released um, four in the last four years, yeah. uh, um, and before that there was just one in two thousand eight. So how do you how do you think about it, and like? I'm presuming that it is quite important to you, given your given your recent history. So yeah, talk to me about albums. I think yeah, it's process. I suppose it's just a product of my of my upbringing. Do you know what I mean the album? The, whether it be, you know, I grew up with cassettes, so you were forced to listen to an album in a certain direction. You know, what I mean, one track after another. So that I, that I've always loved that that idea, that that format, and that that um that journey that you're that you're you know you're supposed to take with with an album but and that's why i think i've continued to try and do that and then still sort of continue it but i understand why it's not as important anymore do you know what i mean i it's it's you know when especially when you've got people like with say for example with spotify and if you've got a free account doesn't it automatically set to shuffle 
shuffle play so you like yeah. it's just like but your album's like you you're fucked do you know what I mean <laughs> so so the, the newer generation probably doesn't really care but it's, it's like I'm not doing it for for anyone but me do you know what I mean so I don't really uh, it's as long as I, I'm happy I want to be able to listen to my album from beginning to end and be happy with with it um I kind of went back to an old school with my um what's it called week or no signal where I, I added a, a mix which hasn't which wasn't no one had done for quite a while especially in dmb because i just like i like you know i used to love that with drum and bass albums of being of being able to put it on and it being a mix because i was used to that uh that format and that way of of, of consuming consuming dmb um yep. so and i've done it with actually i've done it with a, a new album i got which is I've written, which is a kind of ambient drone one, but I've still done it as a mix because I liked, I used, I, I wrote it for me and it was almost like it was something I used to put on to kind of help me go to sleep and it, and it worked. So I was like, you know, that's probably not a good, good sales pitch. Do you know what I mean? It's an album that'll put you to sleep, <laughs> but, but you know, I'm sure there's a playlist out there for it somewhere. Um, I like that. I like that format. I like that. Um, when an when an artist puts that kind of care and attention into into a record of like this is how I wanted to start and this is how I wanted to end and this is you know and this is the story that I want to tell because I assume that there is a story there do you know what I mean there's you know if I listen check the albums that I've sort of grown up listening to whether it be sort of you know Marvin Gaye or um, Stone Rose Stone Roses. Depeche Mode, you know, all those sort of, you know, those great albums, they just, every, every track resonated with me for a different reason. But, uh, you know, as a, it's almost like a, it's like, they're like movies in some ways to me. Do you know what I mean? That I can go back and revisit. So I like the idea of having that out there in the world. But like I said, again, at the same time, it's not really for anyone else but me. Uh, if it, but and if and if people like it, then that's a bonus, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that's quite a healthy way to think about making music. To be honest, I think if you get too deep in the weeds on what people might or might not like, it can be it can muddy the waters, can't it? To an extent. Yeah, it's not it's not a good thing, man. It's just kind of I enough. Mean, you know, I just it's 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 why I love just writing like doing collabs with people and things like that. Just kind of like I just want to see what happens. I don't really, I don't. I'm an end product. It's it's never been of interest for me. And I think it's like, isn't it? Was was it was he say? Was it Quincy Jones or something like? Once you think of, was it? Once you think about talk about money, like the devil enters the room kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, some totally. kind of, <laughs> you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't want that. I just kind of like, I want to make, enjoy making music for, for the right reasons for me, ultimately. Um, it's, it's, it's weird that I've kind of like, it's only, it's within the last four years that I've, cause there's such a big gap between my first album and my second album because I just didn't really want to share my music with anyone. You know, I mean, it was kind of like I put me almost like I put music out. I, in some ways, exit my label was was gave me the ability to hide in and not have to release music because right, it kept my it, it kept my name out there as uh, as Debridge. Do you know what I mean? The head of exit, and I had and I was I had all these great artists f- giving me music I could play and release on the label. 
and it was sick, but it just allowed me to just kind of do my thing in the studio and not really have to worry about any of that. So it's only in those sort of the last four years of learning to kind of share what it is that I've written with people. Was that, was that like a, was that like a confidence thing or was it, was, I mean, what, what, what do you put that down to? Not wanting to, not wanting to put your music out. I think definitely confidence has got a lot to do with it, especially with, um, especially with the fact that I was being sent so much sick music that, you know, because of that, the art, you know, you're talking about the arms race of people playing tunes to kind of get rewinds. There was also the sonic arms race of tunes sounding as loud and as big as, and you know, as everything. And I just couldn't, I couldn't compete in that, in that war. And it wasn't really a battle I wanted to compete with, compete in. And so, you know, I'd write, I'd, I'd be writing all this stuff. I'd be really happy, but you, then you'd put it up against a tune that I, you know, that I might be playing out and it just sounds like, Oh my God, this is just, it's just night and day. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, so there was that, that side of it, definitely the confidence of not being able to play, uh, which kind of fed into me not being able to play my own music as well. So I, I kind of, but I was almost happy with that because it was just kind of making, I make music as a, it's a, what's the word? It's um, it's my own sort of, it's for my own therapeutic means. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, I just enjoy, I enjoy noodling and I enjoy just writing stuff and getting things done. And I, I enjoy the, the act of, and the art of making music. And the, the other side of it is, it's, it's like, some, you know, something you have to think about. And I didn't, I don't really want to have to think about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but, but I'm, I'm, I've, I'm getting better. The, I'm, I'm learning to let go. I'm learning to be, I'm learning to share, I guess. Well, you've re- but, released a lot of stuff in the last few years. So there must have been a, a bit of a shift, I guess. Yeah, well, I think, well, I think a lot of it down, also down to my label manager, kind of like, dude, like, what are you doing? You've got all this shit. Just, like, just, just, just get it out there. Do you know what I mean? Just kind but of that like, could really help. Having a, having a sort of like neutral voice, you can just tell you what's what. That can be a huge help. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's again, I think also I also come from because this is maybe it's a generational thing as well. Where, because I definitely saw, especially in the sort of like the um, uh, hard uh, renegade hardware BC days, to sort of today, there wasn't this need for everything to have to be released. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like the. I think I've said it before, but it's, it was kind of like it's. If it didn't come out at the time, it's because it wasn't good enough. Do you know what I mean? And just it's like. Okay, okay, we're sort of ten years down down the line. It's it's still maybe it's still you know looking back, actually it was all right, but at the time it wasn't good enough, so it, it didn't need to come out. But there's there's this, there's this definite kind of like, I think it's changing. It's changing more now, but there was there wasn't this era of like everyone feeling like everything they released had to be had to be out there and available. Do you know what I mean? And it's almost like. Which is where the the positive, in some ways, the positive side of dub plates was. There was that it had that natural filtration, which you don't necessarily get now. Um, yeah, I think there's a there's a sort of pressure to be constantly doing stuff now, which maybe wasn't there so much. Yeah, there was. Yeah, there was. There wasn't that, that real. There was a pressure to obviously to write. There was a, re- a pressure to write big tunes and write bangers, definitely. But it was almost like you knew if something wasn't good enough. You know, so it was like, I'm not going to share this with the world. So that's, again, it's almost like these little things that have stuck with me is kind of like, don't need to share this with the world. 
It was never a case of like content for content's sake, which sometimes yeah. you get the impression that you know some people are. That's how it works now. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I think I think there is it is getting. I think it's changing. I've, I've noticed like since I've you know started doing my live thing with the Black Electric, and I kind of like I'm going through another sort of transitional pay, phrase as a producer and and. A, dj performer whatever it is and discovering new acts and things outside of my immediate genre and i'm just it's i mean really enjoying it because it's just it's like almost like i've been stuck in that world for so long that i sort of forgot that there's a whole whole other world of things going on out there so yeah just just discovering great music and just and also as well, what's nice as well, because I'm coming away from DMB a little bit in terms of what I'm into, I'm hearing the differences in mixes now where there isn't that need for things to be super loud or whatever. It's just like people are just writing writing tunes and enjoying it and this is how it sounds. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, so you can enjoy it, you can enjoy, enjoy it for what it is. So it almost, I'm feeling a lot more comfortable in myself because of that, because my, this is it it may not sound you know it may not be as a big wall of sound as everything else but it still stands up in its own right so that's that's helped yeah absolutely well um, that's probably a good place to finish actually uh, okay. we covered a lot of ground uh it's been great thank you so much for doing it man no worries no worries good to it's good to speak to you yeah, that was D-Bridge conversation from all the way back in February 2022. One of my favourite episodes of the show today. Absolutely great conversation with the man. What an amazing career he's had. What an amazing body of work he's amassed. And so many great experiences, so many great stories. So yeah, I'm going to go because my back still hurts. <laughs> so I'll hopefully see you back here with a new episode. Same time, same place next week on the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.